0: There remains only France. Within our reach behind the French sector of the Western Front, there are objectives for the retention of which the French general staff would be compelled to throw in every man they have. If they do so, the forces of France will bleed to death. General Erich von Falkenhayn, Western Front, 1915. Hello, and welcome to the Battle of Verdun podcast, episode one, the background and the plan. The Battle of Verdun was the turning point of World War I and the high watermark of the German effort to grasp some kind of victory over the French and British. In 1916, after 20 months of fighting to no effect on the paralyzed Western Front, Germany needed to do something Germany was in her nightmare scenario of fighting a two-front war, having been unable to knock out either Russia or France in 1914. Additionally, the offensives on the Eastern Front in 1915 had pummeled the crap out of Russia, but that bear, amazingly enough, continued to hold on. Russia proved again and again how it could absorb ridiculous losses in men and territory, yet continued to put up a fight. In the West, Germany faced the combined armies of the French, British, and Belgians who slammed themselves bloodily and recklessly against the 475 mile long trench line that was the Western Front. One of these fronts needed to be eliminated. So the German army came up with a plan to eliminate the Western Front. It would attack the French army at a place where it would be sure to respond ferociously. This new plan would break the French, their army and their ability to continue fighting the war. Germans didn't plan this battle to be a simple breakthrough. They planned it to be something new and different. It would be a battle where for the first time, the goal was not to take this hill or capture that city. The goal at Verdun would be to kill as many Frenchmen as possible. Literally. By this massive amount of killing, the French army would be bled white, as the infamous phrase goes, and would be knocked out of the war. Germany would then go on to deal with the real enemy, which was perceived to be Britain. So who am I and why am I doing this project? my name is uh, Mike Cunha and I have been reading about World War One for a long time. It's simply a fascinating subject for me. Uh, and this is mainly in the sense that it was a time where the Victorian era ended and our modern era that we live in was born. Personally, my interest came about in a bit of teenage contrarianism, ridiculous as it sounds. Uh, I was reading about World War I when the rest of the world was going through the 50th anniversary of the World War II years. Uh, at the time, I already had a working knowledge of the WW2, but not so much on the one. So while the History Channel in the US ran constant World War II marathons, I bucked the trend and was reading on the first war, not the second. I was knocking out boundaries when I was much younger. I'm also a huge fan, all caps letters there, period in between each word for emphasis, of Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and Robin Pearson's The History of Byzantium podcast series. In listening to these awesome histories made awesomely listenable and having found very little on World War One battles, the priceless Imperial War Museum's voices of the First World War podcast notwithstanding, I decided to work up a multi-part, but by no means exhaustive summary on the Verdun battle to English-language listeners out there. Uh, Before we start, just a few disclosures to get out of the way. First, all of my research for this podcast was done through English-language sources. In my research, I have discovered that my French is non-existent and my smattering of German is laughable. So everything comes from English sources. All of my sources are listed in the bibliography page of the accompanying website to this podcast, www.battleoverdonepodcast.com. Check them out, and feel free to let me know if there's anything else I could or should have referenced. These podcasts will cover mainly the military aspects of the battle, from the background of and build up to the battle, to the conduct of the battle itself, as it was fought over key terrain and other features. As this is a summary, I will attempt, hopefully coherently, to tell the general story of what went down at Verdun. Except where it may be necessary, I will avoid getting into the useful but cumbersome details like the following found in military histories. Uh, At the northern tip of the Verdun salient, the French 72nd Division, consisting of the 143rd Brigade, 144th Brigade, and 107th Brigade, faced the combined weight of the German 7th Reserve Corps, the 18th Corps, and 3rd Corps, each consisting of that sort of thing. Finally, mistakes are all mine and no one else's. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged in the commentary of the website and on iTunes. The Battle of Verdun has been likened to a microcosm of the entire First World War in itself. In 1916, over 10 months on an approximately 125 square mile battlefield, the French and German armies poured in some 40 million artillery shells. Yeah, you heard that right. In order for the Germans to push the front line forward six miles and for the French to later push it back six miles. Casualty count topped 700,000. At the end of the battle, like at the end of the war itself, Both the attacker and the defender were exhausted with no clear victory won or lost. Well, let's backtrack a bit and start from the beginning. In the summer of 1914, after a series of actually carefully considered options, the central powers of the German Second Reich and the Empire of Austria-Hungary decided to go to war with the Entente powers of Serbia, Russia, France, and Great Britain. The reasons are many, multifaceted, and fairly complex. Far more complex anyway than some Archduke getting shot with his wife in some backwater provincial city. A whole separate podcast series would be required to give this topic any of its appropriate historical due. June 28th is the given date for the start of the First World War. But in Western Europe, it was actually another five weeks or so later that the shooting really started. That summer, nationalist fervor built up as the days passed after Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo and Serbia was given some pretty outrageous demands by Austria-Hungary. While the mood was again far more complex than conventional wisdom would have us believe, the fact is that the general mood in most countries was one of approval for war. Every generation has its war, it is said, but in 1914, Europe had gone nearly two generations since any major conflict had happened on the continent. The last big one being the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71 and which also happened to be a predecessor conflict to this great war about to start. Yes, the Balkan Wars had just happened in 1912 and 1913, but that was the Balkans and that was business with the Turks. So those didn't really count. So the masses of young men in Europe were eager to get into a fight. European powers mobilized. Like the cocking of a bow, armies readied, aimed themselves at each other. And in early August, 1914, let fly. Once French and German forces made full contact, fighting exploded over Eastern Belgium and across Northeastern France. One and a half million imperial German soldiers swung like the long arm of a huge clock from Germany into neutral Luxembourg, neutral Belgium, and into northern France. The intention was to swing south from Belgium and into France, enveloping Paris, and then turning east to catch the French army's unprotected rear. This was the Schlieffen plan that had been in the works for years. For its part, the French army had screening forces to hold off the Germans, but otherwise went immediately on the attack with its long-awaited Plan 17, where French forces launched themselves headlong at the lost provinces of Alsace and Lorraine, which had been annexed by Prussia after the Franco-Prussian War. With their 19th century blue tunics and bright red trousers and just bursting with Elan and the will of the bayonet, the French army walked right into the path German machine guns manned by men in Feldgau, who side them down in wave after perfect wave. Within days, French casualties ran into the hundreds of thousands. On August 22nd alone, 27,000 Frenchmen would die between fighting in the Ardennes and at the town of Charleroi. This was modern warfare, where one machine gun team could sit and take down a whole battalion of heroes. To paraphrase Dalton Trombeau, in his devastating novel, Johnny Got His Gun. This happened because Germans had planned for this eventuality. Again, this was why they were marching through Belgium in a huge arc swinging down on France. In the first few weeks of the war, the German army's onslaught was nearly unstoppable. The Belgians had their massive fort at Liège breached, an event that would have repercussions for the forts at Verdun later, and were continually pushed back. They would wind up hanging on to only a thin strip of their homeland to the east of the Ypres salient after the wrongly named race to the sea later that autumn. French and British forces in northern France reeled under the weight of the German push into northern France and in the thrust toward Alsace and Lorraine, the French army had met with nothing short of a terrible and bloody disaster. Germans were finally stopped near the River Marne in September when the far right of their swinging arc Led by a general von Kluck and his first army, suddenly wheeled east instead of south. The plan had been for von Kluck to swing down from Belgium to the west of Paris and then, once south of the French capital, to wheel east and chop up the French army's rear. von Kluck's mistake was big because it meant the Germans would now potentially march in front of Allied troops rather than behind them. Additionally, their right flank would be exposed fatal error was caught by the military governor of Paris, General Joseph Gallieni, who urged the overall commander of French forces, General Joseph Joffre, to get French troops up to the Marne and quick. What followed was a pretty epic battle that flowed from the disastrous Battle of the Frontiers into, as the historian Suo Ting wrote, a series of engagements fought simultaneously by army corps, divisions, brigades and even battalions for the most part independently of any central control and independently of the conduct of adjacent units. French and British gave all they had and threw in all they had in order to stop the Germans. This was also where the small but incredibly professional little British expeditionary force first proved its worth. Having been dubbed a contemptible little army by Germany's Kaiser Willem II. Hang on a second. Kaiser never actually said that. Uh, That's a myth that was actually created by the British War Office, but the name stuck. The BEF was the smallest national army on the field, but it was also the only one with a wealth of combat experience. His Majesty's soldiers of that first contingent sent across the Channel were seasoned men, who had seen fighting and killing at nearly every corner of the British Empire. When von Kluck's careening First Army slammed into the barely prepared British at Mons in late August, the Brits quickly got themselves together and introduced the advancing and inexperienced swaths of Germans to the British Army's regulation, 15 rounds a minute, of very accurate Lee-Enfield rifle fire. While the Battle of Le Mans turned out to be an inconclusive but helpful holding action, the British shot down some 5,000 Germans or 1,600 of their own lost. The Marne turned into an allied victory when the then commander of the Germans, von Moltke the Junior, didn't have the strength to break through the line. He had pulled two army corps out and sent them east to deal with the developing crisis on the eastern front at Tannenberg and the French rushed thousands of troops into the developing battle area. At one point, General Galliani mobilized every taxi in Paris to drive an entire French infantry division up to the front, one of the first instances of motor vehicles being used for just this purpose. Von Molke's transfer of those two infantry corps turned out to be a critical and fateful error. Between the 5th and 11th of September, 1914, the Germans were thrown back, and the French and British were able to peel themselves away from the wall they'd been up against. It was during the Battle of the Marne that Verdun would first appear on maps of the First World War. As French forces continuously fell back after the disastrous Battle of the Frontiers, the German Fifth Army had practically surrounded the fortress city on the River Meuse. The French Third Army, however, under General Sorel, seized all of the high ground to the north of the town while it could. It thus formed the Verdun salient seen on every map of the Western Front. There's another myth right here that General Joffre ordered the abandonment of Verdun, but that has turned out to be just not true and probably concocted by General Sorrel himself so that he could have bragging rights to being the savior of Verdun. Sorrel's move was one of the few times the French or British would have the time, opportunity, or foresight to grab the good ground on the Western Front. French 3rd Army held this line as the Germans furiously attacked it, thus making the Verdun salient a hard pivot from which the French line extended and stiffened. The Germans had to search further up the line towards the Marne for a spot to break through. In this initial action alone, Verdun already proved what a crucial point in the battlefront it was by being a rock the German wave crashed and broke against in the opening weeks of the war. It was indeed the linchpin to the forming Western front. When the line at Verdun held, it was like a core of ice. From this core trickled an icy vein that froze the front line in place as each side tried to outmaneuver each other after the Marne. At this point, all of the combatants were exhausted. In the string of battles from the Marne front up to the English channel that followed the German defeat, allied troops on one side, Germans on the other, tried to get around each other's flanks as a line of hastily dug trenches extended further and further from Verdun. Fighting slashed and tore its way through northeastern France and on into Belgium. At the Belgian city of Ypres, the British formed the second great salient on the Western Front, fighting the first of three separate battles at the Ypres salient in November. This period of fighting is the incorrectly named Race to the Sea. No one was actually trying to get to the English Channel. That's just what happened when the front line ended there in December 1914 with exhausted Germans on one side of the trench line and the Belgians, British, and French equally exhausted on the other side. The frozen front line coursed its way through northeastern France and on into Belgian Flanders, usually ending with the somewhat better prepared Germans seizing the better ground. By this time in December of 1914, French army alone could already count some 454,000 killed killed, not killed, wounded, and missing. The number of all three categories brought French losses after five months of war to some 900,000 men. That's 900,000 men after just five months. The Germans themselves had already lost some 800,000 men combined losses up to this point. But the Germans, bloodied, bruised, and as beaten up as their enemies, realized they were now fighting the two-front war they had always dreaded. They hadn't knocked out Russia either. So on the Western Front, they settled in to stay. They dug their trenches deep and made them as sturdy and defensible as possible. The burden would be on the French and British to take occupied France and Belgium back. At Verdun, the salient formed in 1914 would stay the same throughout 1915 and on into early 1916. At the time, the protective arc bulging into the German side of the Western Front was thought to be an impregnable line of defense. So let's take a bird's eye look at Verdun itself and those defenses. You can reference the maps posted on www.battleofverdunpodcast.com as we go along. Verdun is a small town located in northeastern France, some 200 plus miles from Paris. The town straddles the river Meuse. The area Verdun sits in can be a gloomy ground of deep and dark forests, hills, stormy weather, and cloaking mists. It's an area almost made for a miserable battle. Because of its location, both being on the road to Paris and along or close to many borders, it had long been a strategic garrison town. Verdun has a storied military history that goes back centuries. Having been a fortress on the river Meuse, it was important enough to be burned down to the ground by Attila the Hun and his crew when they romped through the crumbling Roman Empire. Verdun has seen several battles during several wars, and the outcomes were not always beneficial to the French. In 1792, during the French Revolution, Verdun was surrendered to the neighboring Prussians, and the great German poet Goethe was there when his countrymen marched into the town. It was one of the last fortresses to surrender to the Prussians during the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71. And with the end of the Franco-Prussian War, Verdun became even more important not just to the French, but to the Germans as well. The loss of the Alsace and Lorraine provinces torn off from France in 1871, the Franco-German border was now just some 30 some miles away from Verdun. And again, this sleepy little garrison town lay on the road to Paris. With France ever dreaming of revenge and the retaking of those lost provinces, and the Germans knowing the almost eternal struggle with the French wasn't over by a long shot, Verdun would definitely be involved in the next war between the two nations. That next war, both sides knew, was just one minor diplomatic incident away from exploding again. Now, a major strategic point, Verdun saw itself ringed by a series of modern forts in the late 1880s and 1890s as the French took to building defenses for the new border. These new forts were monstrous works of concrete, rebar, and meters-thick layers of earth. Built to withstand the ever-increasing destructive power of modern artillery, these forts went underground, leaving only concrete housings that featured retractable gun turrets exposed above ground. Underneath these turrets were a labyrinth of stone and concrete tunnels, which are three feet wide and five feet high, that led to the manning garrisons their living quarters, and ammunition storage areas. The biggest of these forts was Douaumont, a couple of miles north of Verdun itself, and it was known to be one of the strongest fortifications ever designed by man. Like a buried turtle with only its rounded shell exposed above ground, its position on the salient on the right bank of the Meuse was one of battlefield domination. Among and between the forts, were also smaller concrete stronghouses, sometimes connected to nearby forts, and other times sited independently. These pillboxes were called Ouvrage by the French and would serve as strong points in any coming battle. In 1914, however, these forts and ouvrages wound up being behind the front line when the salient formed around Verdun. To the north of the town lay several ridges and hills that the French Third Army seized before the Germans could giving the French the advantage of the high ground. On many of those hills and in the low ground in between were thick copses of woods that provided excellent cover and concealment for both sides. In describing the front line at Verdun, the main reference point on the ground would be the River Meuse. The Meuse bisected the salient into two unequal halves. On the French trenches, the western half would be called the left bank the eastern half, the right bank. While territorially unequal, both sides of the salient contained equally important terrain or man-made defensive features. From the western edge near Vaquois, the bulge that was the Verdun salient began at Evocor where the front line pivoted from a northeastern direction and ran almost due north to a point just north of two villages named Malancourt and Haucourt. From there, the line turned northeast to the French-held hills above Bettencourt and then curved around the German-held Bois de Forges before reaching the left bank of the Meuse. Behind the French line lay two hills that overlooked both the left and right banks of the river, Gut 304, I'll use the English Hill 304 from here on out, and Les Mortes Hommes. I'm gonna stay with the French on that one, but for anyone new to the Verdun battle, it translates to Dead Man's Hill. Crossing the Meuse, the French had trenches right at the northern edge of a high ground village called Brabant before turning north and curving around the Bois d'Aumont. From here, the line dipped to the Bois Car, and then turned north again around Bois Le Comte and then south to the Bois Herbebois. Then ran southwest past the French held villages of Orne and then to German held Maucor, and then in a general southwest direction to the eastern end point of the salient at Les Eparges. At Les Eparges, the salient ended. Behind the French lines on the right bank were forts Douaumont and Vaux, about two miles back each from the first trench line, and behind them lay the smaller forts of Belleville, Saint Michel. Souville, Tavon, and Moulinville. These were part of the ring of forts that surrounded Verdun. With the forts on the right bank and the hills on the left, it would seem the French had secured for themselves a mighty fortress in the Verdun salient. Through the rest of 1914 and into 1915, the German Fifth Army, led by the Kaiser's son, the Crown Prince Willem, made efforts to cut off the bulge at the edges. They even tried digging mines under the lines at Les Epars and blowing those up. In the end, their efforts led to much of nothing. In time, from the Verdun salient eastward to the Swiss border, the trench lines became an unspoken quiet zone where battered German and French units were sent to recuperate from the hellish battles further up the line. An unannounced and unannounced unspoken rule of live and let live between the poilus or hairy ones as was the nickname for French soldiers and the hated Boche, a derogatory French name for Germans roughly meaning cabbage head because of the prevalence of sauerkraut on the Germanic diet cross no-man's land reigned and Verdun in particular became a cushy sector in which to be stationed so if the French had such a strong line with command of the high ground and the surrounding forts, why Verdun? Why would the Germans choose to attack here? Who would give that command? Well, that's why we're here. Rewinding back just a little bit, we left the end of 1914 with the Western front in a stalemate. 1915 would see nothing but frustration and failure for the allied powers. Across the world, their efforts to break the deadlock met with only more machine guns, more trenches, more barbed wire, and more bodies. The epic battle at the Gallipoli Peninsula turned into a replay of the Western Front with Turkish and Allied troops. The Italians went with the Allies in May 1915 and opened up the Italian Front against the Austro-Hungarians, but that bogged down in the Alps almost instantly. Whatever the Allied powers were attempting to do with their birdcage at Salonika, it wasn't working. But nowhere was the failure so readily apparent in 1915 as in France and Belgium. As we talked about just a little bit earlier, when the exhausted combatants slumped into their trenches at the blood-soaked end of 1914, the Germans had a mind to stay right where they were. They dug in, and dug in deep. German trenches almost always featured that stereotypical Prussian neatness you would expect. Reinforced trenches dug to an average depth of nine feet with secondary and tertiary lines of defense. Dugouts bored well below the depth to which a British or French shell could penetrate into the earth. Might even feature wooden paneling on the walls and electricity. Germans sought to protect their soldiers and as much as possible provide some comfort while in the front line. All of these efforts pointed at one central theme, the Germans were here to stay. While disappointed that the war of movement had come to a muddy and bloody halt, they quickly adapted to their new situation and settled in for the long haul. With several thousand square miles of France and Belgium under occupation, the Allied powers saw it differently, especially the French. The hated Boche had to be driven out and at the point of a bayonet was the only way to do it. First five months of the war had seen a million French casualties due to frequently fruitless and questionable frontal assaults by brightly uniformed infantry. Unwilling to think of a better way, the French and Allied plan for 1915 was to smash through the German trenches with an artillery superiority they did not have and follow that up with the same type of frontal assaults by the infantry. At least the brightly colored uniforms were gone with the blue tunic and red trousers being phased out for the French and replaced with the new horizon blue uniform starting in late 1914. It's hard to change your thinking once you're set in your ways, of course, and organizations like armies are notoriously slow and difficult to change as far as mindset is concerned. And here was the mindset of the French army in 1914 and lasting well into 1916. Offensive a outrance, attack to excess. The French believed that winning a war would be done with a bayonet charge and a line. You needed to have fighting spirit. That was it, literally. While most European armies modernized into recognizably 20th century organizations replete with bolt action rifles, ever heavier artillery and drab colored uniforms, the French largely ignored these developments or discredited them on purpose in the last decades of the 19th century. Yes, they had the reliable LaBelle repeating rifle from the 1880s onward. But it was like they took their beating in the Franco-Prussian War and said, You know, if we had just wanted victory more than the other guy, we would have won. Which, you know, to a certain degree was true. But you also needed modern weaponry, organization, and tactics to build on that psychological edge. Not the French. They had their Lebel rifle, but the uniform stayed the same. Blue tunic and red trousers. As their Teutonic arch enemy developed ever more mobile, heavy artillery, the French laughed and said in complete seriousness, thank God we don't have any of that. It would make us less mobile. So the mainstay of the French artillery arm would be the soissons the famous 75, a rapid firing artillery piece that would prove great at infantry battles like the Marne, but wholly inadequate for the trench battles of the rest of the war. This was to be the case until the French finally got with the program and started manufacturing bigger caliber guns or taking them from stationary forts. Hmm. There's a point of conventional wisdom out there that argues that World War I-era soldiers were quote, lions led by donkeys, end quote. The troops who fought the war were brave, resourceful, and willing enough to fight the war and endure its hitherto unseen scale of suffering. It was the generals who led them who were a pack of jackasses. To act like I'm on Facebook, it's complicated. The world wasn't prepared for the devastating effects, smokeless powder, bolt-action rifles, machine guns poison gas, and modern artillery would have on the thousands and hundreds of thousands of fragile human bodies. While I personally have always leaned towards agreement with this bumper sticker slogan, after having read much more deeply into the conduct of the war, I find myself hard-pressed to think of any better solution other than to limit offensives and try to save soldiers' lives. When the only tools available to you as a general were poor bloody infantry and artillery innovation does seem to have its limits however the callousness with which the life of the average poilu or tommy or jerry was considered by many senior leaders is something else soldier was just another commodity to be counted used and expended like artillery shells or truck tires the donkey moniker sticks when you read about how so many senior generals on both sides of the Western Front were entirely too comfortable with the catastrophic casualties their soldiers took. With exceptions like the British General Plumer or French Marshal Pétain and a very few others, when you look at how recklessly and how carelessly the overwhelming majority of World War I battlefield generals treated the men under their command during pitch battle, This is where the fault lies. So, with this all-out guts-and-glory mindset, the average French poilu was fairly doomed to die on the battlefield or to be maimed horribly. Their chances increased even more so under the plodding and uninspiring leadership of the commander of French forces, General Joseph Joffre. When war opened, General Joffre, known as Papa Joffre by the troops, was in command of the French army. He got to Joffre for two reasons. By being in line with contemporary French political thinking, which emphasized republicanism and is way too deep to get into here. And by having an absolute lack of knowledge of military theory. In short, the rotund and Santa just got out of the army looking Joffre was a good figurehead Exactly what French military and political authorities in the time before the war wanted. Joseph Joffre was born into humble peasant origins in 1851, one of 11 children in the family of a cooper. He went the military route, and at 19, he found himself commanding an artillery battery during the Siege of Paris in the Franco Prussian War. After 1871, he had a long career as an officer serving in France's colonies across the world, from Africa to Indochina. Though he had first gone to military school for artillery, he served in the colonies as an engineer, and he made a name for himself by being very organized with supplies for his troops. Okay, so, break. To give this man credit where credit is due, this was Joffre's strength. He was a good organizer extremely skilled at logistics. Also, any improvements to French border fortifications and heavy artillery up to 1914 were due to him, and he oversaw the passing of a conscription bill a year before the war started. Knowing that war with Germany was inevitable, he became a master of the French railroad system in order to more efficiently shuttle troops to the front. His organizational skill would see the harnessing of some 4,300 trains to move two million soldiers to the front lines in the first weeks of the war. In the early 1900s, he was sent back to France where he briefly commanded an infantry division and then an infantry corps. Then went on to serve on the war council and a year after that became the chief of general staff, both of which were highly politicized positions. So when the war started, France had in command of its army a man who was good at supplies but had little experience in tactics. But while he lacked the tactical proficiency he needed, he certainly did not lack in self-confidence. Drawing on his peasant origins, Joffre was a guy who thought with his gut and not so much with his brain. And he was that type of guy who would make a decision and think no more of it. He made a call and went with it. This is the mindset that watches 300,000 Frenchmen get shredded on the fields of Northern France and doesn't once think things could have been done differently or better. Now, of course, being a general is a difficult job. You know that even your best and most brilliant moves are going to bring a violent death and or terrible wounds to many of the soldiers under your command. It's an inevitability. But Joffre ordered a preparatory artillery barrage and a massed infantry assault to follow that up. And while true, what would you have done had you been in the 19th century shoes and facing a diabolical 20th century war? Still, Joffre just wasn't bothered by the losses his army took. Even his biographer, a staunch supporter of Papa Joffre, would admit the guy had no intellectual curiosity whatsoever. Joffre didn't read books or learn new ideas. It showed on French casualty lists in 1914 and all through 1915. But because his incredibly calm presence had overseen the French victory at the Marne, Joffre rode high in the public conscience. And even as France watched the cream of her youth drain away forever. So all through 1915, the French and British armies hammered away at the German trenches. The British, under the command of Field Marshal Sir John French, used many of the same tactics utilized by the French. We're just going to gloss over the names of the battles here because the pattern was the same. A general overconfidence that a preparatory artillery barrage would cut the ever-thickening ground cover of barbed wire in front of the enemy's trenches while simultaneously blowing said enemy to pieces. Then a massed infantry assault that would be scythed down because inevitably, the artillery barrage hadn't done a good enough job. It was never enough artillery and both sides would discover time and again that no matter how much steel rain you poured into an area, someone always survived to make a stand. Offensiva outrance began to give way to a new theory in the French army during 1915 grignotage, which meant nibbling away at the enemy. This was a new code word for attrition, and behind it, the French kept to their, understandably, cherished hope of a per se, breakthrough. This continued hope for a breakthrough would keep the casualties as high as ever. So the names of the battles and offensives, Champagne in February and March by the French, Neuve-Chapelle in March, where the British actually broke through the German trenches but had no follow-up plan. In April, a surprise twist. The Germans attacked the Ypres salient by using poison gas for the first time. In the ensuing back and forth of attack and counter-attack, the front lines shifted three miles closer to the shattered city of Lace. In May and June, the French battered away in Artois And then Champagne again between September and November. In September, the Brits used their own blend of poison gas at Luce and Artois. Nowhere was the desired breakthrough achieved and exploited. There was a lot of grignotage, but no per se. The war of movement did not return. If anything, both sides just dug in deeper. For all their efforts in 1915, the French lost Another 1,600,000 men, and the British some 300,000. The Germans hemorrhaged 900,000 of their own sons to hold the line. In terms of ending the war, the Allies were no closer than they were at the end of 1914. In terms of ground recaptured, this British politician named Winston Churchill sourly pointed out that Of 19,500 square miles of France under German occupation, the Allies recovered eight. That year, the shine started to come off Papa Joffre. It was impossible not to see the casualty lists, for France to see how literally all her young men were disappearing. Joffre's equivalent on the other side of the trenches was one General Eric von Falkenhayn. Von Falkenhayn, commanding German forces on the Western Front since replacing the disgraced von Moltke in late 1914, had watched the passing of 1915 and thought he saw an opportunity. As we talked about at the beginning of this episode, the Germans were stuck fighting a two-front war that consumed men and material at an unprecedented rate. In the East, The Germans regularly kicked the crap out of the Russians, but Ivan kept showing up for work the next day. In the West, Germany had stayed on the defensive with the exception of what became the Second Battle of Ypres. Even on defense, the German army had shed nearly a million men in France and Belgium. Things had to change. On the surface, von Falkenhayn appeared radically different from Papazof. Do a quick internet search on... Erich von Falkenhayn, and inevitably the photo that will come up first is a full portrait of the stereotypical Prussian military officer with his hands clasped behind his back. Von Falkenhayn certainly looked the part. With the severely cropped crew cut, a piercing gaze and long handlebar mustache, he looks at home in the stiff collar of his uniform. His Porle Merite, Imperial Germany's highest medal, is displayed proudly at his throat. In contrast to Joffre, who could not hide the stocky peasant roots he came from, but to his credit, neither can I for that matter, von Falkenhayn looked every bit the professional Prussian soldier Germany was known for. In truth, however, he was more like Joffre and the new British commander, Sir Douglas Haig, than any of the three would ever have admitted. In the end, von Falkenhayn was a guy who got the job because of his political connections He had the ear of the Kaiser and he knew how to play the game. Erich von Falkenhayn was born deep in Polish Prussia in 1861. His family was of the vaunted Junker class that had roots going back to the 12th century and the Teutonic Knights. At 18 or 19, he began his military service and at 25, he married. That's about all we know about him personally. In the Prussian army, von Falkenhayn's career was nothing spectacular. He served in this position here and that staff job there. Like Schaaf, von Falkenhayn wasn't seen as a genius, and he too showed little interest in military theory. Which makes you wonder, where did the armies of the day find these guys? In the late 1890s, he served with the German military mission in China taking part in the putting down of the Boxer Rebellion there. This was when von Falkenhayn's performance caught the eye of the Kaiser. Von Falkenhayn came back to Germany to continue to serve in leapfrogging positions, from commanding an infantry battalion to then going on to being the chief of staff to an entire infantry corps. For non-military listeners out there, a battalion is roughly a thousand troops or so and a corps is like 30,000 troops or so. The responsibility increases tremendously the higher up you go. Here he got in really good with Kaiser Willem as the commander of that corps was a tool and von Falkenhayn came out looking better than his boss during some field exercises. After that, he was the Kaiser's man and when the war started, he found himself as Minister of War for the Imperial German Reich. So imagine that. One day, you're a politically calculating but obscure colonel in the faceless ranks of the army. And the next day, you're the secretary of defense for today's modern closest equivalent to the minister of war job. Just as he was politically calculating, von Falkenhayn was calculating in a military sense as well. For a time after taking over the war effort in France and Belgium, he also retained his war minister position meaning he had wide control of the conduct of the whole war itself. Personally and professionally, he remained a cold and distant person. He even wrote his memoirs in the third person who thought nothing of the losses his decisions incurred against his men. Von Falkenhayn watched 1915 play out on the Western front and his perceptive mind went to work analyzing and calculating. All of the battles and events of the year fed into his brain, from his authorization to use poison gas at 2nd Ypres to watching the Allies flail almost uselessly at his trench lines to the development of submarine warfare in the Atlantic. He went to work putting together a plan for 1916 that would be pleasing to the Kaiser and that would produce the needed victory on the Western Front. So there are those alternate history scenarios that pose a central question of which person was most responsible for an event that happened in the past. And that like if you could send a Terminator back in time to take out Adolf Hitler, World War II would never have occurred. On those lines, if you wanted to go back and prevent the Battle of Verdun, you would want to have von Falkenhayn removed from the picture. Because the battle was totally his idea. Sometime in 1915, von Falkenhayn wrote up a memo on what should be done for the coming year and how. He was shrewd. In his memorandum to the Kaiser, he talked about the course of the war and its current trajectory from his angle on the big picture. Which is that this great war playing itself out in all its horror across the globe was really a struggle between Great Britain and Imperial Germany. France, Russia, and newly belligerent Italy were all in the war under the influence of Great Britain. This was some pretty smart political machination as the Kaiser had some mommy issues and lo and behold, mommy was English. In a more realistic sense, von Falkenhayn may have also realized the UK's growing role in the war. Von Falkenhayn got down to business in his memo to the Kaiser. If the British were the real enemy, then the best way to attack them would be to break the enemy's best sword. Britain's best sword was the French army. The UK's new legions of volunteers were still coming online and were not yet ready for the big time on the Western Front. So his idea was to break the French army by attacking it at a place of such importance that the French leadership, quote, would be compelled to throw in every man they have, end quote, to hold it. This preferred location for this was Verdun. After the attack, the Germans would dig in and make the French army bleed to death with its insistence on repeated counterattacks. This was the core concept for the coming battle, killing as many of the enemy's men as possible. Most battles have an objective that can be seen or touched. Soldiers need to take this hill or capture that town. But not here, and it was not to be at Verdun. This idea was one that could only have fully developed from the corpse-choked mudfields of the First World War, as the generals worked their way down the list of ideas on how to prosecute this conflict. The plan called for the Germans to take ground, but only so the Germans could lure in the French and then mow them down by the thousands. This was to be Strategie, attrition, acted out in real time in the hills north of Verdun. This battle was planned as an intentional slaughter of the enemy on an industrial scale. So, like we covered earlier, von Falkenhayn was a lot of things. He was cold and distant Like Joffre and Haig, he could care less about casualty counts. He was calculating. In presenting his 1916 strategy to the Kaiser, he did so in a way that was sure to get the Emperor's approval while keeping the details fuzzy. In essence, he said, Listen, we're going to play it this way. Once we get to Verdun, it'll all work itself out. He was also indecisive. You might look at that photo on the internet and say, this is very much a man of action, but you'd be wrong. Von Falkenhayn was always vacillating when he needed to make clear and present decisions. As a result, his battlefield victories were always incomplete. He was a guy waiting for a lucky break when he could make his own success. He was forever acting like he was waiting for the big hammer blow to fall out of the blue. Although everyone knew that to be ridiculous. Check out his plans for Verdun. First off, battle plans for the coming offensive were kept secret from just about everyone except those people who absolutely had to know. Germans didn't even tell their co belligerents, the Austro Hungarians, thus denying any chance at anything like a coordinated strategy against the Allies. The Habsburg military would find out after the fact. Man, would they be supremely ticked off at their tight-lipped Teutonic ally. Getting down to the tactical level, very crucially, von Falkenhayn never specifically stated that the town of Verdun itself was to be captured or that the Verdun salient was to be hacked off the Western Front. It left things deliberately vague. Looking at the salient with River Meuse bisecting it, Von Falkenhayn only permitted an attack on the east bank of the line, what we will call the right bank as per the French point of view. Critical reserve forces were kept at least two days march away. Von Falkenhayn was always worried that the inevitable allied counterattack would come out of nowhere and catch him off guard. When almost every German field commander pretty much knew the next allied push would be in the area of the river Somme or thereabouts. Von Falkenhayn was the Super Bowl winning coach who agonized over some new team that might pop up out of the blue to surprise him. You'd think he was silly if the calls he made didn't have such devastating consequences for a generation of Germans and Frenchmen. Coming offensive was codenamed Unternehmen Gericht by the German army. Unternehmen means operation and Gericht means judgment. The battle was to be a judgment of France and her army, and to what her reaction would be to an attack on a town with a history like Verdun. Germany's Fifth Army would be carrying out the attack. Having held the Verdun salient since its formation in 1914, the men of the Fifth Army knew the terrain. Leading this army was a man who would prove himself surprisingly capable. Commanding Fifth Army was none other than the son of Kaiser Willem himself, the Crown Prince also named Wilhelm. Crown Prince Wilhelm was, as the preparations were underway, 34 years old and the commanding general of an entire army. Naturally, he had led a charmed life being the next in line to the German throne. He certainly owed his generalship to the influence of his father and to that of his position within the German second Reich. Being in that position and just by the fate of being himself, Crown Prince was, at the time, the butt of many jokes and much talking behind his back. He was tall and lanky. Pictures of him with that enormous black hussar's hat with the big death's head symbol only seemed to amplify his physical awkwardness. Kaiser, in the historical style of royal parenting everywhere, treated his son very coldly and was short with him. Kaiser even went so far as once embarrassing his son in front of his own officers. The Crown Prince commanded the 5th Army but could make no decision without the approval of his chief of staff, General Schmidt von Knobelsdorf, who was every bit as happy and cheery as that name implies. This arrangement was on the unspoken orders of the Kaiser. This behind-the-scenes command structure was probably not an altogether bad thing, as with the Verdun sector being a rather quiet and laid-back part of the Western Front, the Crown Prince had a habit of trying to personally occupy every good-looking French girl he could find in the occupied territories. This was always a source of potential embarrassment for the Germans, who rushed around frantically trying to cover up the Prince's actions. The man loved the ladies. He, he had his priorities, you know? The British press nicknamed him Little Willie, which in that cheeky British way, I'm sure, had two meanings. But despite his background as a pampered and spoiled playboy soldier, the crown prince was pretty perceptive. He was also just as militaristic and nationalist as the rest of the German regime. His post-war memoirs have it that he was uneasy with von Falkenhayn's fuzziness with the details and was never for the battle at Verdun. but this could be a case of Monday morning quarterbacking. At any rate... He was a good enough military leader to know that his men needed clear commands towards a clear goal. So after having received the vague plans for Operation Gericht, Crown Prince cleared them up by instructing the fifth army to capture Verdun itself. He was doing what von Falkenhayn should have done to begin with, but his attempt to clarify what his superior wanted to keep unclear would cause problems down the line at a time when there would be no time for problems. Things started to move quickly once Verdun was chosen as the place for carrying out Gericht. Behind the German lines, the inevitable buildup of troops and materiel began to take place. The Germans were efficient at the setup and mastered operational security to a degree that remains impressive. French villages were summarily emptied of their inhabitants to make billets for incoming troops. Church steeples behind the line were dismantled, to deny French artillery gunners visible target reference points. Large underground cellars called Stollen were constructed to hide and house the specially trained assault troops who would be the vanguard of the attack. This went some way to hiding from French aerial reconnaissance the growing numbers of men crowding the Verdun salient. And in a successful effort to stab out the eyes of French airplane recon flights, Germans instituted what they called an aerial barrage over the skies of the coming battlefield. Germans gained full domination of the airspace over Verdun with groups of fighters that shot down every French airplane or observation balloon that took off to gather information. All of these preparations worked. French military intelligence never picked up a scent of what was going on until the very eve of the battle. Now, mind you, A good portion of this was some willful ignorance on their part. Joffre and his like-minded cadres at GQG were sure that a German attack would not be forthcoming, so they ignored any evidence that pointed to the contrary. This inability to detect that the Bosch was up to something big ever done is probably the biggest crime committed by the French Army's GQG, among many others. In a tragically fitting part of the story, The French spent 1915 stripping Verdun of the majority of its defenses. When the army's guts and glory leadership grudgingly realized they needed heavier and heavier artillery for the trench warfare they found themselves stuck in, they looked to the forts around Verdun for any guns that could be of value. You can understand this situation. General Joffre needed heavy artillery in order to mount his offensives and he needed it as quickly as possible. Stripping the forts was the least bad idea in a bad situation. Also, with the Germans having shockingly knocked out the Belgian superfortress at Liège, the value of immobile forts packed with unused cannons was understandably questioned. So Joffre wound up pulling out 43 batteries worth of guns. That's like seriously hundreds of guns from Verdun's forts along with 128,000 rounds of ammunition. An overwhelmed general named Hare was put in charge of the Verdun quote unquote defenses and told to make do with what he had. By January, 1916, the Verdun salient was exactly where you'd want to attack on the Western front. 34 French infantry battalions manned the salient in largely inadequate trenches and strongpoints supported by 270 artillery pieces for which there was about five minutes worth of ammunition available. Facing them were 72 battalions of German infantry and combat engineers with 1,200 guns behind them, all keyed up and ready to get this show on the road. French poilus standing watch in the gloom of the snowbound forests and ravines north of Verdun knew something was coming. Alsatian deserters from the German army were filtering into French lines, warning of an impending attack. But the Poilus were largely powerless to stop what was coming. They could only face it as best they could. Surviving would be almost a matter of chance. But like an angry red flare shooting up into the night sky, one voice called foul on what had become of the Verdun defenses. That voice belonged to a man named Lieutenant Colonel, Emile Drillon, who had long since sensed the danger and decided to sound an alarm to some old political allies. This Lightbird Colonel alone shed light on the appalling state of the frontline trenches, and noted that he and his men didn't have enough barbed wire to set up any kind of obstacle worth a damn. His whistle blowing while brazenly blowing off the military chain of command, worked. His well-timed complaints reached old friends in parliament who quickly turned to the upper echelons of the French army with unwelcome and unexpected questions like, so what's up with the defenses at Verdun? Why are we hearing that things aren't up to speed there? General Joseph Galliani, the former military governor of Paris and now the minister of war and no friend of General Joffre, to put it mildly, asked what was going on there too. Only he didn't really ask so much as explain. Listen Joffre, if the Germans break through, the responsibility will be not just yours, but the government's as well. The warning was in there, along with the unstated command get over there and fix it now. Joffre was livid. So the French army turned a jaundiced eye to the state of affairs at Verdun and found out that why, yes, indeed, there was a lot lacking. In the first weeks of February, more infantry divisions were either moved into Verdun or stationed nearby where they could quickly react in the event of an attack. Many of these troops were shuttled up to the front and put to work improving the first trench line facing the Germans, and others on building a second line that should have already been there. Winter in the Meuse region is a miserable affair in general, so think of the freezing cold and the wet and muddy conditions these men must have labored under. Then think of them working and knowing they needed to dig in as rapidly as possible, because at any point, the Bosch might start something serious. Signs of impending attack were becoming clearer as January turned into February. Deserters were now reporting that all leave was being canceled in German units and that hospitals just behind the lines were being cleared to make room for new casualties. Along with the disappearing church towers behind the German lines, German artillery was conducting more and more ranging fire meaning it was firing shells at the areas it intended to blast to pieces later. These ranging shots were to make sure the guns were on target. Crown Prince moved the last pieces into place. He soon had 850 guns and some 150,000 men concentrated on the right bank for the opening moves. He would only attack on the right bank, as that was all von Falkenhayn had permitted him. The date for the attack was set for February 12th. 1916. On the German side, the men and the artillery backing them up were as ready as they could be. The assault troops and the pioneers were in their underground stolen, standing in freezing water, but otherwise ready. A total of 1,200 guns were sighted and ranged in on their French targets along the 65 kilometer length of the salient. Millions of shells were stacked in depots behind the front line. In the air, German aerial barrage kept a tight supremacy in the skies. So here it was, big day. February 12th was to be it. Next time we'll move right into the opening shots of the Battle of Verdun. This episode focused exclusively on the background of the First World War and not on the battle itself but I want you folks out there to get the context of how a battle like Verdun came about in concept. Don't worry, the horror is about to begin and we'll be slamming into it head on next episode. Thank you for listening and I hope you'll join me for the next episode, which will be released in two weeks time. Again, your comments and reviews are welcome both on www.battleofverdunpodcast.com and through iTunes. See you folks again soon. Take care.